Hi, I'm Nicholas Carey, your host today, and welcome to the December episode of the Blockchain.com podcast, entitled The End of Transitory. I'm the co-founder of Blockchain.com and the author of The Future is Decentralized. Today, we'll be joining my co-host, Dr. Garrett Heilman, the head of research at Blockchain.com, and a special guest, Charles McGuera, the chief strategy officer and head of markets. Thanks for tuning in today, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share this edition of the Monthly Market Outlook. Okay, without any further ado, our special guest, our very own Charlie McGuera, head of, head of markets, head of strategy at blockchain.com. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Hey guys, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so Charlie McGarrett comes to us uh, from a long and illustrious career from Goldman Sachs, where he was a partner, who's the head of metals trading, um, and then uh, was a serial entrepreneur himself. Uh, we acquired Charlie's company a few years ago, and he's been at the helm of the markets group, among many other roles um, here at blockchain.com. But uh, I think one of the first questions I'd love to ask, um, you know, you were a gold bug, uh, and you traded gold for uh, some of the largest institutions in the world. What is going on with gold in the 2020? Um, you know, this is a market that we expect to see gold doing extraordinarily well and then it's down. It's doing the exact opposite of what people would expect. Um, can you dig into maybe why that's happening? Yeah, um, <laughs> gold is like this, it's a bit like Bitcoin in the sense that it's like a Rorschach test uh, of, of like your prior beliefs, like to different, it means different things to different people. And, and Bitcoin is really the only asset I've ever seen that is even more polarizing of opinions than gold. Back in traditional world, um, in some ways, gold is not a respectable thing to talk about with, with a big portion of the client base uh, or the investor base overall. Um, it means different things to different people. Uh, and so, you know, to some people, it's, uh, it's a countryless currency. To other people, it's a, a default swap on sovereign risk. To other people, it is just the anti-dollar. Uh, to some people, it's just a commodity with a normal supply and demand, and you can just figure out the production on it, and, you know, that's kind of it. And then, and then I think where I came out on it ultimately is it's like a bond. It's a bond that is guaranteed to pay you a 0% real yield forever. Um, and, that's, uh, and, and that relationship between real yields, in other words, how much uh, the prevailing level of interest rates are less uh, being adjusted for inflation. Um, and as real yields go more negative or as they go down, uh, gold should be more attractive because zero looks pretty good if you know, treasuries minus inflation is actually a negative number like it is now. Um, and so as real yields came down over time, gold rallied a lot. Um, and this year it's been a, a little bit more kind of back and forth. And so this year we really saw um, growth expectations in the world going up uh, on the rebound from COVID. Uh, and that has been uh, a, a pretty big weight against gold. So even though there's some inflation that's coming from um, from supply chain problems and, and, and stuff that, like generally it's in the context of, of a big uptake in, in, in global growth. Uh, and since gold represents basically the value of putting your capital in cold storage and not doing anything with it, uh, when there's a lot of growth in the world, uh, real yields should be higher. And, uh, and so, you know, why being gold basically? And that's why gold has traded poorly. I think it's really interesting because one of the predominant narratives on Bitcoin is Bitcoin's like gold, but more so, right? It's even more scarce. It's even harder to get, right? And it's uh, and uh, and it's even more useful, I guess, than gold because it's easy to move around really quickly, um, comparatively speaking to gold anyway. 
Uh, and, um, you know, that narrative, I think, has kind of broken this year because Bitcoin is digital gold, even though that's kind of the popular inflation narrative, uh, kind of hedge narrative. Bitcoin's been trading pro-correlated with the equity market, like in other words, pro-correlated with uh, growth. So like, is crypto a risky tech equity or is it this kind of, you know, anti-social, I'm going to kind of put my money away in cold storage and save it and not deploy it in the real world kind of thing. Um, feels like it's more like a, like, a, like a risky tech equity. You know, it's a speculation on how, how, how the world's going to go. And so I think um, the big uptick in post-COVID post growth is really what's, what's held gold back, basically and benefited Bitcoin. Yep, interesting. So last month, the Consumer Price Index um, said that there was 6.1% inflation. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, whether or not that number is even remotely accurate? And um, we titled this <laughs> presentation at the end of transitory and maybe uh, pine a little bit about this new era we're in, which yeah. is a potentially permanent um, era of uh, inflationary uh, pressure. Yeah, so um, this is a pretty you know deep topic where we could go miles deep, but let me just and and it's 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 frequently debated out there in the market. Um, let me just add a, a couple of a couple of thoughts, which may hopefully add a little bit of value on, on the margin. Um, first of all, regarding is six percent the right number? You know, is the CPI constructed honestly and correctly? I'm just going to take a I'm going to punt on that. I, I, that's a that's a that one's radioactive. Everybody's got an opinion. Nobody's <laughs> opinion is going to change. So, uh, so we're going to leave that one for a second. Um, but I do think it's really interesting when, when, you, when you think about um, the asset inflation that has predominated really since the end of the euro crisis, right? I view kind of the financial crisis all the way through the euro crisis. You can see my little coffee mug here. I keep calling and blame the euro, um, which my wife got me as a gift. But when you think about that whole kind of era of, oh, wow, the banking system's over leveraged. Now we're going to backstop it and, and move that risk up to the sovereign, basically. Right. Since then, we printed a lot of money, a lot. And that's created basically a huge amount of asset inflation and potentially crowded out real, real economic activity because it's basically allowed, um, allowed businesses that are not viable to carry on financing themselves, basically. Um, and so you could argue that all the asset inflation has actually been bad for real growth. Um, I would probably feel pretty strongly in that camp. And with COVID, uh, but you've had all this kind of financial leverage and this kind of war between the ever rising value of balance sheets and yet the sort of painful lack of growth in income statements that support those balance sheets basically. Um, but what's interesting is that with COVID, um, and that's all about financial leverage. With COVID though, COVID really disrupted the operating leverage of the global economy. It's less a financial construct and more like we had just-in-time inventory and highly optimized manufacturing processes and a very long, very efficient, but very finely granulated and highly specified supply chain in lots and lots of different industries. With COVID coming and creating an operational disruption, financial tools like intervention from the central banks are not as effective in, in fixing something that's been physically in the real world of meat space and molecules actually being uh, interrupted. And you saw that with oil going massively negative uh, you know, during the COVID crisis because there just wasn't any storage. And now the, the commodity inflation that predominated until quite recently where the supply chain just isn't physically working because it's been disrupted a lot. And I think, um, I think that supply side inflation, which really comes from 
an economy that has to readjust to shorter supply chains and more resiliency because there's just more uncertainty. Um, and that, um, that supply side inflation is not really fixable with monetary policy, um, at least not as easily fixable with monetary policy. Of course, if they just keep hiking rates eventually and, and cutting the Fed's balance sheet, eventually they can create deflation, um, but only in the context of a massive hit to growth. And so when we look at how it's going now, I think there's a really big open question in the market and it's driving a huge increase in risk premia um, around, you know, is the, the, the existing policy toolkit effective, you know, effective medicine for, for what ails us? Um, and I think there's, the market is really kind of saying like, wow, on the one hand, we have this high inflation and the central banks need to react by basically taking action to reduce aggregate demand in the face of a reduction in, in aggregate supply to keep prices stable. Um, but it, it's not necessarily, you know, but the risk of a big policy mistake that tips the market over into recession uh, is, is quite is quite real. And I don't think there's any consensus in the market around whether the Fed is like way too lenient or, or not hawkish nearly enough. Um, and that's fundamentally because monetary policy and the composition of the Fed's balance sheet is not the right tool to deal with what is a physical supply chain constraint. Um, and so what the result of that is, is they, there's, you know, the market, I think, kind of ignored this for most of 2020 because we were just busy bouncing back from COVID and, you know, getting outside again. Um, and, 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 and most of 2021 as well. Um, and then the assumption was sort of like, well, the fiscal deficit is so big, they've just got to keep digging the hole. You know, they can't, what can they really do anyway? But now that uh, Jay Powell's been reappointed and they're kind of saying like, hey, we do need to do something because the market has no, like there's no obvious consensus on the, the what the something that they need to do is. The fact that they're saying we're in play, we're watching, we're going to take action, but nobody can agree on what the action is, is just driving like a much, much higher degree of uncertainty and therefore a re-rating of risk all over the place. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the, the and, and, I think, and I think that's likely to persist uh, for quite some time because these supply chain issues are, they're getting fixed, but they're not going to get fixed overnight. Um, and it's not clear at all, especially now with um, the new COVID variant out there, what the appropriate uh, response is uh, to, to the existing situation. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the setup. And let, let me just opine yeah. for a second, sit in my armchair and have a, a personal opinion. I don't speak for blockchain.com or anybody but myself on this. My own view is that um, they're likely more constrained than they're saying now. And they probably don't mind putting a little bit of fear into the market because the, the more that the market basically synthetically hikes for them by re-rating risk premia, flattening the curve, um, and so forth, then the less they actually have to do. I think it's an open debate, though, how much they can actually do. And if the market just keeps rallying um, and really will stay super negative, I think then basically the, the market will be challenging them. So right now, the behavior that they've induced in the market, I think, is probably to their liking. Um, at least it would be a part of the chairman of the Federal Reserve, which I'm not. <laughs> yeah. One day, Charlie. <laughs> One day, Charlie, you're going to get the nod. I, 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 I foresee it. You know, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and this, like you said, this is a, a huge topic we could spend hours on. I think for the listeners, um, the, the term that, that the monetary policy tool in uh, Jay Powell's toolkit that he and probably the other governors are going to be using a lot, which I think Charlie mentioned is the jawboning tool. 
uh, talking to the market, uh, trying to scare the market, you know, with, with words, uh, sometimes trying to maybe encourage the market at other times. I mean, that seems like something we're going to see more of. I think we saw some of that this week. I think, I think this, this, there's a real question in my mind, Charlie, and I, I'd be curious how much tolerance the Fed would have for some kind of major decline in asset prices and in this environment. I think, I think for me, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical that the Fed's going to sit back and watch the markets tank 20% and, and not you know, come out and say something or do something even just because things are fragile, as you discussed in the supply chain world, meat space world, but also in, in the asset price world and all this uncertainty around new variants. And I just, I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, and that's going to buoy markets, that, that knowledge that maybe the Fed is tied, hands are tied, and they're not going to sit back and watch a 20% decline. I mean, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think I take the other side of that, actually. Um, I think they're probably more willing because so many people have made so much money on asset appreciation in recent years, especially post-COVID. I, I think it's probably, and inequality is a big political issue. I, I think that there's probably is some tolerance for a re-rating lower. Um, I also think that um, inflation has not been an issue until recently, but inflation is political, right? Um, and you know, yes, wages going up is 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 great uh, for the great mass of voters, but living expenses not keeping pace with wages, or, or sorry, ex exceeding the pace of wage increases is is definitely you know electoral kryptonite. And I actually think it wouldn't be surprising to see. Um, the Democrats become more hawkish on the margin because inflation is actually a political issue for um, you know middle and lower class America, uh, and so I do think I do think that there is some, and 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 if you know the, the other thing I would say is, boy, the toolkit feels like an awfully awfully blunt set of instruments to to go and perform open heart surgery on the economy. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if as, as the problems that need to be solved by policymakers get more complex, they might want a more finely granulated toolkit to deal with it. And that would come in the context of um, more finely granulated regulation to encourage and discourage certain kinds of activity. And also ultimately is a very strong argument for implementing a CBDC. Because so I'm, I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you brought more, that up. A much more, uh, you know, a much more accurate tool. It's like more like a yep. scalpel. Like you can basically engineer the behavior of the money depending on who's holding it. Right. Yeah. So if you're a giant tech oligopoly sitting on billions of dollars and not deploying them in the economy, maybe you get a negative rate. Right. And if you're uh, you know, a small business owner in a swing state, like maybe your dollars are in 10%. Right. <laughs> and they can totally program that if they had a digital dollar. And I suspect that fact is not lost on them. So yeah, Charlie, Charlie laying out his, his, his ideas for his future candidacy for Fed share right now as we speak here. But on, on that, on the CBDC note, I'm so glad you brought that up. We had big news this week, David Marcus leaving, uh, what's it called Facebook. now? Um, DM oh, slash, yeah, Novi. I mean, they, they've been playing this name changing game there. You lose track of it all. We had, you know, questions around Jack. what uh, Lael Brainerd's appointment might mean for kind of the CBDC debate against, you know, Jay Powell and others who've kind of come out and, and kind of signaled some support for the idea of maybe, maybe the Fed shouldn't do CBDC and actually should just kind of lean on the private sector and private sector stable coins to be synthetic CBDC with the Fed playing a, 
uh, a more active role in managing those stable coins. Um, you're making a great point, though, I think, about how this the CBDC is a scalpel for not just performing monetary policy, but also just efficiency, right? I mean, the, the billions that the, the U.S. spends each year on minting uh, coins and banknotes, the inefficiency around the COVID payments, uh, lost checks, the delays. I mean, there's a lot of arguments in favor of digitizing payments and cash in general. And, and you're making the case that, that, you know, basically the macro setup also is a further argument. So what's your, what's your kind of view on the timing of CBDC and what that might look like specifically in the U.S., where I think there's more question around what this thing is going to look like, more political debate? Um, I think it will take time because everything in America that touches on politics is complicated, to say the least. Um, and governance of the banking system in America is fractionated across lots of different uh, regulatory stakeholders in addition to a, a whole lot of uh, vested interests. So I do think it will take time. Um, so, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I think the question is really, does the need for a more finely granulated policy toolkit, you know, manifest itself more aggressively? Because um, that has a, you know, a, a way of clarifying uh, consensus building. Um, I suspect not. I suspect it will take uh, still three, three to five years at least. Uh, that said, I think there's quite a lot of pressure uh, to advance the conversation further than it's come because of what the Chinese are doing. Um, and also because of the threat of uh, private currencies from tech platforms, right? And, and I think it's quite interesting when you see the big incumbent banks, they're starting to get a lot more uh, tech fashion forward as well. Um, you know, Goldman announced a, a cloud offering, I think yesterday. Um, so yeah, so open, open for debate, but I think the pace, is, the pace will accelerate but it'll still take a while. Interesting. If we could turn now to the crypto markets, uh, and and one of the the topics that I, I teed up uh, in the market section about kind of divergence, our our boss, our, our CEO, our co-founder with Nick uh, of Blockchain.com, Peter Smith, is on record saying that he thinks for 2022 we're going to start to see more divergence, uh, and 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 you know it's not going to be as easy just to make money spraying and praying, you know, your allocation across the entire crypto asset sector, you need to be more selective. And, and the way I interpret that is, is fundamentals are going to start to matter more uh, than they have. Uh, and, and I'm just curious, where do you come down on that debate? I mean, you know, we saw Ethereum diverge from Bitcoin in November, it's up over 500% for the year, Bitcoin's up 100%. What's your view? So there's a lot of different factors at play here, in my opinion. Um, one, one factor that's at play is the pace of innovation in the space is accelerating. Um, and there's been a lot of capital inflow into the space to fund additional innovation. You know, lots of venture rounds being printed, lots of new projects, a lot of interesting stuff. And the infrastructure layers for, for the, whole, the whole space are better and more performant. One of our product managers here at blockchain.com told, told me recently how excited he was about um, the development of scaling solutions for Ethereum. Because he's like, look, with layer two actually working now, it, it's like, it's great to feel young in crypto again, because we can build all the things that we couldn't build five years ago, because the, the, the infrastructure can support it. And I thought that's really interesting. So there will be a lot more data points around how use cases are being kind of explored, iterated through, and, and some of them will, will, will take hold and catch fire the way some of the gaming and NFT stuff did earlier this year. Um, so that's kind of one, one piece of the puzzle. 
The second piece of the puzzle, so just ongoing acceleration of investment and, and innovation, basically. The second piece of the puzzle, though, is, um, is really about inflows. If lots and lots of new crypto investments are spinning up, they need product to buy. And so if there's not enough good stuff to buy, people still need to buy stuff to get their allocations put to work. So, and, and there's an element of a self-fulfilling prophecy there too, because obviously if a project is better funded, you know, it has a higher chance of becoming successful. <laughs> um, but I think as long as the pace of investment inflows from traditional world try to cross the bridge into the crypto ecosystem, that is likely to fuel um, more stuff and, and, and keep the correlation somewhat high uh, between assets. And then I think the biggest piece of the puzzle actually is on the macro side. And it's more about the level of real yields. Right. So when real yields are negative, money in the distant future is worth more than money today, which means that the stories that you tell are not particularly accountable to any observable data point of how they're actually going right now in the present. Right. So to the extent that real yields go up, the market will care a lot more about spot current observations of how things are going and less about the stories that people tell into the distant future. Now, probably a much higher real yield in that sense is bad for all of crypto from a price perspective because crypto is all about a story of the transformation of the internet over a decades long time frame. By the way, a story I believe, um, and I think there's a massive you know, amount there, um, but from a pricing perspective, uh, to the higher interest rates go and the higher real yields in particular go, the more accountable everything is to how is it doing right now, not how will it do in the, in the distant future. And so in that sense, higher real yield will definitely lead to a lot of differentiation between project quality um, because the market is just going to care a lot more about the short term than, than the long term. Um, now, uh, that said, I think there are some incredibly high quality things here in the space. I'm, I'm, I'm going to refrain from naming names uh, just because I don't want to put the, our company in a position of, you know, uh, sponsoring something without uh, you know, the appropriate uh, consensus built in the company. But in my opinion, there's a lot of very interesting projects that are having a lot of real traction and a lot of uh, real success. And it is surprising to see how little differentiation the market puts in that versus, versus other stuff. Um, and I think so, the big, one of the big headlines is basically like, it's just going to get more competitive and um, that will that will cause some winners and losers to differentiate themselves. There's a couple other factors um, that I think are worth mentioning. So the sort of three macro trends are obviously the inflationary environment that um, we're all existing in and trying to navigate that. The institutional um, investment into crypto is actually happening this time, unlike in 2017. Sure. And then you really do have this cultural zeitgeist of all the creators, the authors, the musicians, the artists are actually working on ways to have more ownership over the things that we entertain ourselves with using Web3 technologies and these layer two scaling uh, capabilities on things like the Ethereum protocol and even Bitcoin today. So any one of those factors I think would have been a relatively um, bullish you know, macro trend uh, for crypto in general, but all three of them are happening simultaneously. Nick, I'd, and Nick, I'd, actually, I'd actually add a fourth factor to, to that, which is, broadly define global.gov, how they're thinking about uh, responding to all of this, right? right? The, the regulatory environment kind of at the, at the, you know, all over the world and how it interplays across jurisdictions. And what I would say is crypto is now too big to ignore. Um, 
And so frameworks are going to have to evolve. Um, and you know, I think there's a tendency in the market to kind of view that as, ooh, they're going to kill openness and innovation and, you know, they're defending the banking oligopoly, which is really, you know, interchangeable with the government actually. And, and there's a whole bunch of incumbent interests that don't want to see crypto succeed and kind of all this paranoia, right? There's, of course, a kernel of truth in some of that. Um, but, um, and, and, but there's also a, a lot of very legitimate concerns that are being raised. And now that crypto is big enough to matter, um, those concerns have to be addressed. Consumer protection, um, crime prevention, anti-terrorist financing, anti-money laundering, these are important things, right? And I don't think anybody in good faith can kind of question the premise of that stuff. Um, and, uh, and it's gonna have to get worked through. And the market tends to see these regulatory headlines as very, as very negative. I would actually take the opposite view, which is, which is like, to the extent that clarification can occur, it just opens up the accessibility of the market to far, far greater pools of capital, far, far larger segments of the population overall, and legitimizes the whole asset class. Um, and, and will ultimately allow the innovation to occur um, at far greater scale. Uh, that market so access point is a big one. I mean, uh, two weeks ago in Lisbon, there's this huge conference called Web Summit, sort of the largest celebration of technology companies um, that are building things for the internet. And uh, there's 50,000 people that attend this thing. I walked through the floor. Every single financial technology company was either immediately tooling a crypto offering or was planning to integrate some type of crypto on-ramp or feature set in 2022. So I think as we gaze into the next year, um, I might put Garrick on the spot and um, have you maybe uh, opine a little bit about some of the things um, that you're working on. You, you made some famous predictions at the end of uh, last year, including that crypto would reach a trillion dollar market cap over the next couple of years. Now you were a little bit off on the timing, um, but you were absolutely right on the direction. What are some things that you can preview for us um, you know, heading into the end of this year, reflecting on what's happened and the capacity and scaffolding that's been put in place you know, where, where does 2022 uh, potentially take us? Well, Nick, you're really, you're really putting me on the spot here because uh, I have not come up with any kind of 2022 <laughs> predictions yet. Um, I mean, the one I'm, I'm happiest with from last year, uh, my, my big prediction was that we'd start to see sovereigns adopt uh, crypto assets, Bitcoin specifically, you know, did not see El Salvador coming specifically and their move to even leapfrog what I thought would be a first step, which would be sovereign wealth funds. Uh, taking more open public positions in, in something like Bitcoin. We actually saw El Salvador adopted as legal tender before then, uh, announcing they were going to be buying it and holding it uh, as a reserve asset, which they've done uh, with increasing um, quantity. Um, so for 2022, uh, I, I'm glad Charlie brought up the regulatory question. It is the boogeyman. It is the cloud that hangs over this space for many people. But I think as Charlie correctly says, and this has been true from the beginning, going all the way back to 2013 and FinCEN's original guidance, the clarity has been net bullish for, for crypto. And, and every time a regulator, regulator comes out, sometimes they may go too far, get something wrong. The New York bit license was uh, you know, very famously kind of poo-pooed as being too expensive, too cumbersome, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that may be the case, but these things have been broadly bullish. Um, and, and I think we're going to see more clarity. We saw even further clarity this week from Janet Yellen um, talking about FATF's recommendations on, on non-custodial wallets, something that's very relevant, of course, for blockchain.com. Again, removing some uncertainty around what's the Treasury's view on this. So, so all of this, I think, is really good. We're going to see more 
Um, I think debate though over topics uh, that are gonna be tricky for the industry to navigate. And I would highlight, I think tax is a big one and, and tax is something that's coming uh, and it is where the rubber meets the road on, on kind of crypto, crypto asset industry flexibility and compliance and, and um, stuff that maybe the industry is not going to be excited about. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically about pressure on DeFi to integrate uh, automated tax compliance uh, into the protocol or into apps. And, and that's something that I don't think people are really thinking about. Uh, it's very complicated, very controversial. Um, but the bottom line is this, you cannot have a functioning society, all right, without a fair tax regime, period, full stop. Society breaks down and, and that's something that we all cannot tolerate. So how that all gets worked out, whether 2022 is the year it starts to get put on the front burner for discussion, I don't know, come check in with me at the end of this month. Um, but, but there's a lot on the regulatory front that I think is gonna be um, front and center next year. Uh, and I think on the whole, that is good. It, it, it kind of helps facilitate in Greece uh, this transition to Web3 and the crypto Wall Street convergence theme that we've been talking about for years that is finally playing out. So the relationship status is it's complicated. I got it's it. It's complicated. <laughs> so we can look forward to... Charlie, what do you have to say on that? Um, I think that... You know, to the extent that tax compliance can be automated, that's a great thing. Like, I don't think people question the premise, should they pay their taxes? It's just complicated to, to, to operationally figure it out, given the complexity of all the stuff in, in the space. And so I think it's an incredible business opportunity to just make that easier. Um, and there's a number of platforms working on that. And that's great. Um, and very pro-social, right? Uh, and that's an important theme too, I think, which is crypto should be pro-social. It's all about you know, breaking down barriers between people and, and, and helping people to, to do things better, faster, cheaper, safer. And, and um, you know, a pro-social message, I'm, like I can definitely get on board with that. And, 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 and I'm sure I speak for all of blockchain.com on that sense. And, and now in terms of the outlook for the market, um, which probably some of you are, are, are waiting for, I guess my view is that um, the derivatives open interest is still very large in our space, um, but it has been shockingly um, resilient to movements in the funding basis, which is a very different behavior in the market than we've seen earlier this year. Uh, and I think that speaks to the fact that it's getting um, more accessible constantly to access balance sheet and more and more traditional players are able to finance crypto positions. So I think like the biggest thing for next year will just be the hunt for yield globally continues to find its way into financing crypto. Uh, and so I expect a lot more growth in our lending business um, you have, you know, two, two or three trillion dollars in market cap and I don't know, maybe a hundred billion dollars total of financing against it. So there's just a lot more uh, work to be done there. And I think that will continue to drive institutional adoption in the space, just kind of the hunt for yield um, and the ongoing professionalization of the crypto industry's backward compatibility to the street and the street basically making the push to forward integrate to being able to access uh, crypto world. And I think they have to because they, they run a pretty meaningful disruption risk if, if, if they don't, uh, you know, get their act together. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's lost on, uh, on a lot of institutional world now. Um, so I think that'll be a big thing. So I would imagine volatility continues to come down over the course of the year, um, you know, subject to some more clarity on the, the central bank policy pathway, but I would imagine we get that over the next couple months. Um, I think that 
the end of your dynamics will be pretty interesting into into deck 31 here around how much more um end of your motivated you know locking in gains you know locking in losses just all that kind of thing um i just expect the mark to kind of chop and then come the turn of the year i would imagine there's pretty big january effect ongoing uh allocation there's just been so much money raised in this space and that money has not been put to work yet um, and so I, I think we're still in a big uptrend. Uh, and that is also, you know, first and foremost, fueled by the innovation because people wouldn't be allocating space if the innovation weren't here and, and it is here. Uh, and so more innovation kind of, we're still in kind of a, a secular bull trend as the technology gains maturity. Um, I think volatility comes down and, uh, and um, you know, if the dollar is a lot stronger and policy is a lot more hawkish, you know, that will, that will be a headwind for the market to, 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 to face against. But uh, what's more likely is they talk at hawkish with the jawbone tool and then, and then maybe uh, actually stay pretty, you know, pretty lenient actually. Uh, and the bull trend continues. That's kind of our baseline view. Charlie, if, if we have time, I've got one more for you, which is, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the U.S. on this call. You know, I'm sure a number of our customers, uh, people out there in countries like Turkey, uh, Lebanon, you know, et cetera, yeah. you know, very, very, very unstable situations, very scary situations, frankly. And I just wondered if you could kind of, you know, as you look out across the world uh, and see things like what's happening in Turkey and other markets and worry, I mean, how, how uh, much is the market mispricing kind of like, you know, societal collapse or, or really severe breakdowns in, in very large countries uh, like a Turkey? Uh, and, and what does that mean for, for markets in crypto, uh, if that were to kind of go further? Well, I think, again, um, crypto is accessible in many places in the world and is more useful um, than local, local currencies. Um, you can't really make the argument that crypto is less volatile because uh, it's still quite volatile, at least in dollar terms. Um, so, but I think I think systems that are atomized and resilient and less susceptible to um, one particular person breaking everything, uh, you know, will continue to do well. So I think those kinds of pressures, um, you know, do present a tailwind to crypto. Um, and certainly, you know, our client base, which is uh, heavily non-US, you know, we talk a lot about US policy because it, it drives the markets because the dollar is the reserve currency of the whole market, right? Um, and stable coins, by the way, are just, you know, increasing dollar adoption around the world, right? You make, you're making dollar as the reserve currency more accessible to huge segments that previously didn't have it. Like, so the policymakers should be delighted with stable coin utilization offshore, actually, if you think about it, because um, it just strengthens the dollar ultimately. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, you know, that's a tailwind. Um, and we are, you know, we are very focused on serving those users, obviously, our big push into LATAM um, It's part of that as well. Um, just giving people a resilient um, exit capability. Um, you know, we think that's, again, a very pro-social mission. Thank you, Garrick. And uh, Charlie, amazing conversation today. So I think there are a couple of concluding um, things I just wanted to, to revisit. You know, um, a couple other stories uh, in the news this last week. Three new multi-billion dollar venture funds have formed with a complete focus specifically just on crypto that haven't even started to allocate yet. So there's still a significant amount of firepower to be deployed um, by risk takers there. Jack Dorsey has stepped down from uh, being the CEO of Twitter to focus almost comprehensively on making Bitcoin 
um, the currency for the world, which is, I think, um, a non-trivial uh, thing for him to be spending his time on. Uh, David Marcus, who was one of the right-hand men of Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, also uh, stepping down, who has had a long history of crypto interest. So be very curious to see where he decides to go spend his time. So those are some big, um, big headwinds, I think, also pushing things into the end of the year. So as we reflect uh, on 2021, I mean, it certainly was one for the economic history books. Um, I think economists will be researching and writing um, about the phenomena of crypto um, and a great focus will be on the past 12 months. So, um, you know, without further ado on the blockchain.com side, uh, keep an eye on announcements um, related to new asset listings for the blockchain.com exchange and wallet coming soon. And uh, if you have any interest in uh, the NFT uh, craze, um, we'd love to have you register that interest at blockchain.com, waitlist for slash NFTs. We'll be making an announcement on our blog momentarily and uh, keep an eye out for some exciting innovations, um, holding on to all your collectibles, digital art and more inside your blockchain.com wallet. So thanks for everyone for tuning in. A couple last uh, points to make. If you missed any of this, you will be able to find it on YouTube, on Facebook, and uh, we'll also be publishing it on all of your favorite um, podcast streaming services. So uh, let us know if you're looking for anything new. Um, send us uh, comments on our social channels. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much for joining us for the December Market Outlook. Okay.